And um, just before I get started, I just wanted to mention that this morning, you know, uh, Grace Kids or Grace Youth programming, uh, but children are welcome to stay in the service. And I believe there's quiet bags. I was going to call them busy bags, but I think the idea is they're supposed to be quiet uh, so that your child can stay occupied with that. So hopefully you've got one. If, if there are... If I haven't picked one up. Are there some? There's some just at the back here by the door. So if you don't have that for your child, feel free to pick that up. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was that if you do need a break from the auditorium, and please feel free to stay with your kids, but if you do need a break, um, please feel free to make use of the um, uh, parents' lounge, which is down the hall and on the right. And even if you don't have kids and uh, you've had enough of me for a while, there's also the uh, the, um, uh, our room, the, the room across the hall here uh, that you can go and take a break in as well. So please feel free to use that, but I'm very happy to have your kids here with us this morning, so please feel welcome to stay. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been struggling with church over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, I look around at the larger church in North America and I get discouraged when I see so many pastors of mega churches uh, involved with scandal and uh, poor behavior. I see how religion is being used for political gain by individuals that seem to not have any moral, moral integrity whatsoever. I'm made more and more aware of the damage that churches cause to indigenous people as we work through this process of recon reconciliation here in Canada. And, you know, I have to admit, too, I've been discouraged a little bit about some of the challenges that we faced here at Grace over the last year or two. And listening to friends that I have outside of this body as well that have struggled and have been hurt by their church families. So when it was time for me to come back to church, I have to say I was a little reluctant. I wasn't sure how I felt about it. And maybe some of you can relate to the way that I was feeling. Um, but I have to say that my connection with my small group helped me immensely, creating, cultivating me a desire to get back in the community and to church. And it's interesting looking in the hall and seeing so many of my small group members here uh, this morning, either serving in different ways or just in the auditorium here. It's fantastic. So we've been meeting online for the last year. And... Um, in the spring, we decided finally, hey, we're going to start meeting in person. So we started meeting on the back deck. There was a few days where it was pretty chilly, uh, but uh, we put on, we covered ourselves in blankets, wore coats, and we got through it. Uh, but the discussion has always been very vigorous and the fellowship very encouraging. And one question that came up uh, during the year uh, was the following. And uh, the question was, uh, is it important to know what sin is? And then the question that followed that quickly after was, what do we need to do about this if it is important? Anyhow, our group did decide it is important to know what sin is, and it's something that needs to be dealt with. But then the final question that came up was, how do we do this? How do we do this as individuals? How do we do this as a church? And um, there was a wise person in our small group that pointed us towards a very powerful analogy that Jesus had used to kind of warn us how to deal with each other uh, with gentleness in these times uh, when sin uh, occurred. And uh, the person had mentioned the analogy of, of the speck and the, and the plank or the log, depending on what uh, uh, version you read. So Jesus had warned his followers 
that before you want to go and remove the speck of the eye of your brother or your sister, you need to get rid of the plank or the log that's in your own eye. Well, my message this morning is an attempt to address these questions that I laid before you uh, by kind of encapsulating the wisdom I was able to capture from my group and also by sharing some of the reflections I've had in trying to answer these questions. God has given me a, a real burden to share this message this morning with you. Uh, I think particularly as we see ourselves in a time of transition as a church. So I'd like to take a moment one more time just so I can step out of the way and God's will could be done here this morning. So let us pray. God, I want to thank you for everyone who is here this morning or who may be listening online. Thank you for the freedom to meet and share your word together. I pray that your will be done this morning through what I say and how the message is received by those listening. May we bring glory to your name through our time together. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was younger, uh, I played baseball and I had the opportunity uh, to be a pitcher for a number of years. Uh, I don't think it had anything to do or much to do with talent. I think it had to do with the fact that I was a lefty, and if anybody's involved with baseball, left-handed pitchers are always at a premium, so that gave me an advantage. And secondly, for some reason, just the way I threw the ball, it had weird movement on it, so without even learning how to throw a curveball or anything, batters just seemed to have a hard time the ball when I threw it. Anyhow, I remember one day I was pitching in a very important game, and I think I was about 11 or 12 years old, and it was the final game of the regular season. We were a half a game up on the second place team who we'd happened to be playing that day. And uh, the outcome of this game was gonna determine who was gonna be in first place. Well, I had a difficult game that day. I walked eight batters in a row. Um, I still remember it. I remember looking up in the crowd and seeing my parents squirming, just feeling so uh, bad for me. And, I couldn't believe the patience that my coach had in me. I think it was maybe to a fault. But as I was throwing and walking all these people, I'd throw a ball in the dirt, and the coach would yell out, throw the ball higher. I'm like, okay. <laughs> then I'd throw the ball above the strike zone, and he'd, he'd, he'd holler out, hey, throw the ball lower. I'm like, I know. I didn't say this to him, but in my head I'm saying, I know, I know, I know where it has to go. I just don't know how to do it. And... Um, Anyhow, uh, suffice it to say, we didn't win that game and we didn't finish in first place. However, the following year, I had a new coach, and he had a different approach. Um, I mean, he certainly filled me in on where the ball was supposed to go. The mechanics of how to get that ball to where it was supposed to be. Uh, what he explained to me is I was kind of trying to aim the ball, and he said, if you want to be a real pitcher, you have to have the right mechanics. You have to follow through to the point where he was getting me to follow through and my arm would actually come down to near my ankle. I'm like, this is weird. And then he said, make sure the foot you push off with comes all the way around. So anyway, I, I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And uh, at first it was really awkward and the ball went everywhere. But, uh, but I was committed to try what he, what he had said and eventually I got the hang of it and eventually I realized I became a better pitcher because I could throw harder and I could throw more precisely because I was actually pitching instead of aiming the ball. And that's what I'd like to do this morning here with my message. I'd like to uh, talk about a few things that I think we can do as individuals and as a church to become more united, 
Um, but I don't want to just talk about the end goal. I want to talk about the mechanics of how we're going to get there. Uh, so I want to start this, uh, this uh, process off by reading some scripture from you. I'm going to read from John chapter 17. Uh, so in this uh, chapter, John has recorded an intercessory prayer that um, Jesus made for his apostles and for us, the church. So the entire chapter is dedicated uh, to this prayer. I'm going to read, just because there's time limitations today, I'm going to read verses 8 to 23 for you. But I do invite you to read the entire chapter on your own. Um, there is so much rich um, knowledge in that uh, chapter about Jesus' vision for the church. But let me read verses 8 to 23 for you now. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them, and I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What an incredible prayer, and that's only part of it. So again, I encourage you to go back and read the prayer in its entirety. There's three sections of this prayer that I want to look at more closely this morning, so I'm going to reread them for you, and, um, and then we'll take it from there. So verses 8 to 10, this is what it said. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And glory has come to me through them. So Jesus is speaking to his apostles here in the beginning of the church. So he's, he's really speaking to us through this prayer as well. He says that the apostles accepted his words that God gave him for his apostles, and they accepted these words as truth. And through the, ex the action of accepting these words, glory was brought to Jesus. And we have an opportunity as a congregation, as individual believers as well, to accept God's word as truth 
and bring glory to his son. The second section I want to look at are verses 15 to 17. And it says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is praying that his apostles and we the church, that we be sanctified. Even as we live in a world as the Bible teaches that is imperfect, that is broken, and that is fallen. So what does sanctification mean? It has several meanings, but the two that I want to speak of this morning are the following. Sanctification means being set apart for the intended purpose that God has for us. Everybody... Hello? Oh, there we go. Now, where was I here? Oh, yeah, sanctification. So, sanctification means being set apart to do the intended purposes that God has for us. And sanctification also means being set apart from sin. So, as we grow in our knowledge of God and, and His Word, we become more aware of the sin that is in our lives. And sanctification is that process of moving away from sin so that we can actually do what God has called us to do. Now, the third section I want to look at now in the description is verse 23. And verse 23 says, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So imagine a church that by the very nature of its unity points towards Jesus as being the Son of God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you want to be a part of that sort of a church. Wouldn't you want Grace Church here to be like that? What would a church like that look like? How does a church go about becoming united in such a way that that unity itself brings glory to God? Well, just like my baseball coach went into the mechanics of how to pitch better, I'd like to get into some of the mechanics this morning as, as to how I think we can become uh, that united church that Jesus is praying for this morning. So I have four ideas that I want to develop and, and work through with you this morning that I think will help. Number one is we need to be vulnerable. Number two is we need to be humble. Number three is we need to be brave. And number four is we need to love each other. So I'm going to start with the first point. We need to be vulnerable. So what kind of thoughts come to mind when I say the word
hostility is a source of positive emotions. Okay, take three. Third time's a charm here. Hello? Hello. Okay, there we go. Um, so she says in her book, Daring Greatly, that vulnerability not only can be, uh, lead to negative emotions, but it can be the source of positive emotions that we seek. And vulnerability can make our lives more meaningful through emotions such as love, belonging, joy, courage, and creativity. And Brown also says that vulnerability is the path to a wholehearted life. And I agree with her. And here's why. If we go back to scripture uh, and we look at when uh, the Pharisees uh, asked Jesus, uh, what is the most important commandment? He didn't hesitate and he was very clear about it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And love by its very nature requires us to be vulnerable because you need to reach out and say, hey, I love you without any guarantee that the other person is going to respond in the same way or even accept that love. In the same way, if we really want to feel like we belong at church and have a place in it, we need to be vulnerable, we need to show up, and we need to be ourselves. This can be scary because we're never sure 100% of the time how people will receive or accept us. But this vulnerability is necessary to grow relationships, to, to produce unity in our church. Vulnerability requires us to be honest and to share with others who we really are. Now, before I move on, I just want to clarify a few things that I said about vulnerability. First of all, I would not recommend that after the service you go up to somebody you've never met before and you start sharing your deepest and darkest secrets with them. I think that would be inappropriate and unproductive. But what I do suggest is that we need to start cultivating relationships with each other where we create a space where we can be vulnerable with each other. Secondly, I think I really need to em emphasize when we're being vulnerable, we also need to be loving, gentle, good, and vigilant with each other so that we have each other's backs. Because like I said earlier, when you're vulnerable, you can be open to negative things. And we need to be here for each other to protect us uh, from being abused as we're being vulnerable with each other. Number two, we need to be humble. So being vulnerable is necessary to build meaningful relationships. But what happens when two people are vulnerable, they share ideas, but they don't agree? One person might think that they have the right point of view on a certain subject, and the other person might be just as convinced. And in fact, there might be somebody that's actually right and somebody that's actually wrong. How can individuals or a church deal with this type of conflict uh, without people getting hurt or manipulated and still create unity within the body of Christ? Well, uh, we see the secular world around us trying to deal with this very same uh, problem. And one of their strategies is to just make truth a relative thing. So really, they'll be saying that everybody's opinions at all times on all subjects are equally valid. And uh, 
that really, uh, on the surface, might appear to be something that's very nice, but ultimately doesn't really resolve conflict because many times opinions are completely uh, independent of each other and contradictory. So, uh, and also this approach uh, neglects the fact that the Bible does teach that there is right and wrong and that sin does exist in the world. So, what should we do? Well, I want to take a look at Jesus' example and some of his words to give us guidance here. So, Jesus is described in John chapter 1 as coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is true that Jesus is full of grace and acceptance. Uh, and he demonstrated this through his three-year ministry that he had here on earth. But he never shied away from the truth of sin and right and wrong in the world. Let's just take an example uh, of when he uh, encountered the woman who was caught in adultery. There was a mob that had assembled to stone her. Jesus was there. And he looked at the mob and he said, the person who has never sinned, I want you to be the first person to throw a stone. And one by one, each member of this mob started walking away because they knew that they had sinned in their lives. Everyone had left until Jesus and the woman were alone. So we can see uh, Jesus' grace in action. But he didn't uh, neglect the truth of the matter either because he also said before he sent her on her way, he said, go now and leave your life of sin. So through Jesus' example, uh, we're called to do something pretty extraordinary. Let me just outline it for you. Uh, so he's asking us to be vulnerable with each other and love one another. Oh, and by the way, there are things that are right and wrong in this world, and we're all going to stumble and make mistakes and have sin in our lives. Oh, and if we do see somebody around us, a brother or sister in Christ that's stumbling, Jesus doesn't want us to, not, to go and hide in a corner and not say anything. He wants us to speak into the lives of our brothers and sisters. This is part of that process of sanctification that I spoke of earlier on. Oh, but uh, while you're doing that, make sure that you don't judge your brother or your sister. And Jesus was very clear about that. So if I come back to that analogy I shared earlier, um, um, just before that analogy of the plank and the speck, this is what Jesus had to say in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 1. He said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, wow. <laughs> How do we go about doing all of this? Speaking in the lives of our brothers and sisters in a humble uh, way. Before I answer that question, I want to look at a couple of ways that uh, the world around us has taken to handle this situation. And I mention them because uh, we see these things happening around us, and whether we want to admit it or not, what we see does feed into our minds and can affect how we behave as well. So these are two behaviors that I've seen in trying to deal with this conflict around us. One is expressing outrage. So this outrage can be expressed by the person that's criticizing or speaking into somebody else's life, or the outrage can be expressed by the person receiving it. The problem with this outrage is that it severs communication between the two parties, breaks unity, and doesn't resolve anything. Uh, the other thing that I've noted, uh, particularly it seems since COVID has come, is this idea of polarization. So opinions are formed by two different parties or two different people, and they're so far apart that there's no middle ground 
to really uh, speak to each other and have a conversation. So again, pretty much impossible to uh, achieve unity and, uh, in, in that circumstance. So I mention these things because, like I said, they do affect and feed how we think. But I think uh, the Bible offers a different approach to this that is uh, more effective and more in line with God's will. First thing I want to say is a Christian should not be outraged when she or he attempts to correct or speak into the life of a brother and sister in faith because the true follower of Jesus recognizes that they are in the same boat, that they fall short of God's standard as well. And uh, I just wanted to reference a couple of texts that Paul had said just to remind us of how true and important that is. So in, in uh, his letter to the Romans, Paul says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as if that wasn't enough, in his letter to the Ephesians, he also says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. So no follower of Christ who really understands that the work of, uh, that the, uh, who really understands what the work Jesus did at the cross for him can really be outraged at the behavior of somebody else because we're all in the same boat. And I'd also like to say that I think a Christian can find common ground with anybody in this world, and we do not need to remain polarized uh, with anybody else if we truly understand who we are in God's eyes. First off, God created us, each of us, every human being on the planet, in his image. And it says in Genesis chapter 1 that when he created us, what he saw was very good. So the fact that we share this in common with every human being on the planet should be our first step to finding common ground with anybody. And secondly, within the body of Christ as believers, we share a faith, a saving faith uh, from our sins in Jesus Christ. So that should mean that the ground between us is even firmer. So let me finish this section on being humble by going back to Matthew chapter 7 and just reading Jesus' uh, analogy one more time. I know I've, I've mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to go and find it one more time here. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, what I find interesting beyond the point that we need to really speak in others' lives with great humility is that Jesus doesn't say to not say anything. He does expect us to speak and talk to each other, but we really need to do it in complete humility. Now I'd like to move on to my third point, which is we need to be brave. So speaking, as we've seen, speaking into somebody else's life when we think they've done something wrong can be challenging. To find that balance between having the courage to do it, being humble, knowing what to say. But what about the flip side of this coin? When someone speaks into your life to rebuke you. How did you even feel when I said the word rebuke? Defensive? uncomfortable. I know that word makes me uncomfortable, and that's why I chose it this morning. Maybe it's not the word we should use going forward, but I think for discussion purposes here this morning, it might be good. It's not an easy word to swallow. 
And I, I want to look at an example in the New Testament that shows somebody being rebuked. Uh, and, I, and I think once we see who that person is, it might give us a little more humility uh, in accepting people speaking into our lives. So who am I talking about? It's Peter. Peter the Apostle. Not only was he one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, he was in the tight inner circle with two other apostles, John and James. So if there's anybody that knew Jesus and knew what his teachings were, uh, it was Peter. Now, after Jesus' death, Peter was trying to figure out how non-Jews or Gentiles fit into uh, God's plan for salvation. And he was really wrestling with that. Uh, and at one point, God revealed to him uh, in, a, in a supernatural way that salvation was meant not only for Jewish people, but for all people. And that Gentiles or non-Jews did not have to follow all the Jewish rules, like eating pork, not eating with Gentiles, and, um, and getting circumcised to receive God's grace and his, uh, his gift of grace. So God revealed this to him. And he was eating at one point with Gentiles. He would eat whatever foods they had. He would eat with them, felt comfortable, was building fellowship. But along came some disciples of James, one of the other apostles I mentioned. And James wasn't convinced yet that um, uh, it was okay to, to be a Christian and not follow all the Jewish laws. So they convinced Peter not to eat with the Gentiles, the Gentile believers. Uh, soon after, Paul... Uh, confronted Peter about this because Paul knew it was wrong and this is what he said so I hope you feel the weight of the awkwardness and the difficulty here so he wrote this in his letter to the Galatians he said when Peter came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong before certain men came from James he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circum decision group. Man, that's awkward. I can't imagine how Peter felt uh, being confronted with this because I have a feeling he knew, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure he knew that what he was doing was wrong. But he was rebuked by Paul in front of other people. Not saying that's what we should be doing, but uh, very awkward. Uh, but when we're faced ourselves with these uncomfortable situations where somebody's speaking to us and saying, I don't think you're on the right track here. What should we do with that? Should we move away and try to avoid these situations? Or should we just convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong? Well, I want to go back to something that Brene Brown had said, that author and sociologist I spoke about before, uh, because I, it really challenged me when I read this a couple of months ago. And this is a quote from her book. It says, right off the bat, I believe that feedback, and I'm using the word rebuke here just to make a point, uh, so I would consider the rebuke, the feedback. She says, right off the bat, I believe that feedback thrives in cultures where the goal is not getting comfortable with hard conversations, but normalizing discomfort. If leaders expect real learning, critical thinking, and change, then discomfort should be normalized. Man, this is a tough message. And for somebody like me who, who hates confrontation, I'm squirming inside even as I'm saying it to you. But once again, I think her ideas line up with Scripture. Um, I'm going to flip to Romans chapter 5 and uh, read something for you. And what I'm going to do, uh, or as I'm reading it, if you could kind of substitute the word that I've been using this morning, uncomfortable, for the word suffering that's going to be in the text, 
We'll see if we can make a connection here. So this is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, uncomfortableness, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given. So this uncomfortableness can lead to perseverance, development of character, and hope. Very important things in our lives. So getting back to the story with Peter, how did he react to Paul's uh, rebuke of him? Paul doesn't write in Galatians what happened, but there are a couple of other texts that we can go and explore to see what happened. So in Acts chapter 15, uh, there's a description of a council that was held in Jerusalem to try to figure out some of the details of the Christian faith. And uh, while Peter was there, uh, there was a group of believers uh, that were uh, with the Pharisees who said that uh, Gentiles had to be circumcised to become Christians. But Peter rebukes them and says, no, that's not necessary, showing that the words that Paul, that he had accepted Paul's words when he had been rebuked, that he repented from his wrong ways, and that he changed. In other words, sanctification was taking place in his life, through the word, well, partly through the words that Paul spoke into his life. And then a little later on, uh, because I was still wondering, like, how, how did Peter really feel about Paul? Um, I'm going to flip through to uh, Peter's uh, epistle, 2 Peter, chapter 3, if I can get there, and uh, see what he had to say about Paul. And I just find it very kind of moving what he had to say. So this is verses 15 and 16. So he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother, brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letter contains some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do uh, the other scriptures to their own destruction. So you can see how Peter's come around, how he's united with Paul. And I wonder when he's talking about some of these teachings that Paul had that were difficult and some people are having a hard time understanding if he was even talking about himself a little bit there. I don't know. But this example shows us that unity can be achieved even in the midst of conflict and difficult conversations. Um, one thing I want to say about uncomfortableness is that uh, it's not my expectation that when we come to church or we're involved together that we should be in a constant state of uncomfortableness with each other. The fact that we share a faith in Jesus should mean that we are, we're on the same page most of the time. But I also want to say that because we're in a time of transition here at church, that we may have more difficult conversations uh, than normal than we normally would have together. And... Uh, all I can say is let's be brave and have those conversations. Now, my fourth idea, we need to love each other, is really not a standalone point, but as you've seen this morning, becomes something that's important to weave through the three other ideas. So let me just summarize my message this morning. 
by showing you how love is woven into each one of these uh, ideas that I've mentioned. So we need to be vulnerable. Show up and be seen within the body of Christ. In our case, here at, at Grace Church. Only by being loving can we use vulnerability to build relationships and unity in the church and prevent hurt and abuse. We need to be humble and speak into each other's lives with grace and truth. And we do this out of love for the sanctification of the other person and not to make ourselves look better. And finally, we need to be brave and accept the rebuke or the word. I think I'm going to drop the word rebuke now. I think you've got the point. But uh, we need to be brave and accept when other people 